I think Ed Cassidy had that Social Security money that he was able to put towards. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did a reverse mortgage. Is <laughs> <laughs> the GI Bill somehow? <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where experienced musicians and good friends work our way through Robert Dimery's 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So each week we randomly select an album, we listen to it, we analyze it, we throw some praise, we heap some scorn, and ultimately give you our jackass opinions on whether or not it deserves to be on the list. So this week, we've been listening to an album called The Twelve Dreams of Dr. Sardonicus. <laughs> Man, that's a mouthful. <laughs> the Twelve Dreams of Dr. Sardonicus by a group called Spirit. So we hope you had a chance to listen to it uh, beforehand, but if you haven't, don't worry. We'll be throwing in a lot of song clips in here along the way for your reference so you guys can play along at home. So before I get any further, what we're going to do, we're going to do some brief introductions and maybe a Twitter-length album review. So we're first going to throw things over to Phil. Hey, I am Phil, a uh, longtime friend of the podcast, and I would sum this album up as uh, Jethro Tull meets... Etc. <laughs> was all the dead space part of the tweet no, as well? No. Well, yes, yes, yeah. There's there multiple several ellipses. Ellips- yeah, multiple ellipses. Right. Three hundred right. characters of spaces. Right. <laughs> oh, is it, is it my turn now? Yes. This is Rob here. Excited to talk about Spirits' Twelve Dreams of Doctor Sardonicus. My review is: This is what the seventies would have sounded like if you removed Led Zeppelin from the timeline entirely. All right. Hey, this is Tom here. I am super excited to talk about the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. (laughs) And uh, I I feel like um, this is an album that like begs you to not take it seriously, but it's actually seriously cool. And I'm Alan. Um, I love this album. I'll just throw it out there right now. My basic review would be, I really wish I knew about this album in college. All right. Back to me. My name is Adam, and I'll keep it real, real short and just say that I'm smitten with this album. So right off the top, just talking about this album. This album came out in 1970. It is the fourth release from the band Spirit, uh, regarded by a lot of progressive rock fans as one of the uh, one of the more important albums that came out of the late 60s and 70s. Mr. Sardonicus is a uh, Dr. Sardonicus is a, is a weird reference as well. It uh, calls back to a horror film from the 1960s a movie called Mr. Sardonicus, wherein a son went to rob his own father's grave of a winning lottery ticket and his face melted. And then wackiness ensues, I can only assume. Is that where they got the term sardonic laugh or sardonic smile Sar- from? Sardonic, yes. Or grin. There you go. 
No, I'm I thought guess I that probably predated it. <laughs> it's additionally, it's an actual conditions rictus sardonicus where your face freezes in a strange grin or something like that or a frown, right? I'm totally going to use that as like an alias someday. I'm Rictus, Rictus Sardonicus. <laughs> Get out of here. That's going to be your porn name. <laughs> right. Fake credit card applications, all kinds of stuff. That definitely sounds like a, a defenseman on like the Czech Republic hockey team. <laughs> <laughs> so talking a little bit about the history of this band, uh, we can quickly go through the members. A guy named Randy California on guitar guy named Jay Ferguson, who was a vocalist and percussionist, guy named Mark Andes, who played bass, John Locke was the keyboard player, not the 17th century English philosopher. Although, if he was the 17th century English philosopher, it would make him the second oldest member of the band, <laughs> namely, <laughs> namely Ed Cassidy. So the, the fun thing about the background of this is that their drummer is easily 25 years older than the rest of the band. So this guy, Ed Cassidy, just kicking around on the web a little bit, I saw he had this kind of, looked like a homemade documentary about himself, and it, it came up and the screen was typing, and it gave his birth date as 1923. <laughs> <laughs> Hanging out with Count Basie. I had, to, I had to go back and double check to make sure I was looking at the right guy. Wait, did you say he made a documentary about himself? Is that I don't know sanctioned? if it was him, but it was very poorly put together. It was like, a couple of interviews and then it had like a couple clips of him in sci-fi movies in his 60s it just wait he's very he's mr skin also he is mr skin that's right so he was bald when he was with the band because he was like 48 when this album released and everyone else was 18 <laughs> can, I, can i point out that randy california is a terrible name and his real name is randy wolf which is a oh, cool right. name why no, there's, so, there's a good story there name? too yeah, Rob, you want to take the story? Go for it. He got the name from Jimi Hendrix. So he played in Jimi Hendrix's band before Hendrix went to London to kind of get discovered. And I guess there was another guy named called Randy in the band. And this is when the dude was like 15 or something. Yeah. So he called one guy Randy Texas based on him being from Texas <laughs> and the other guy Randy California because to keep him straight. And then they were playing together, I guess, in Greenwich Village in New York when Jimi Hendrix was sort of initially discovered by some uh, British promoter playing his version of his cover version of Hey Joe. And they were like, Hey, we need to take this guy to England to record him and kind of get started. And Hendrix wanted to keep the band together, but because the Randy California was a minor, they were like, nah, no dice. You're, you're left behind. So he goes to Britain and forms uh, the experience. Yeah. That's undeniably a cool story, but Randy California is undeniably a worse name than Randy Wolf. And I don't know why he stuck with it. I guess if Jimmy Hendrix gives you a name, you got to stick with it. But like if he called him like, you know, like, you know, Randy Asswipe or something like that. Be Randy Asswipe for the rest of his career. Like, come on. Well, they say you can't pick your own nickname. So I guess he's right. stuck with it. So Randy California, he's, he's by no means the uh, the center point of the band, but he's just an interesting piece of it. So when he was in Jimmy James and the Blue Flames, he was 15. So at 15, he's playing with Jimi Hendrix. Hendrix goes off to England, as Rob said. He decides to work with his stepfather, who is, in fact, Ed Cassidy. So his mother had married this drummer. The reason why they came out from California to New York was because Ed Cassidy 
had a bunch of jazz gigs out here. So they moved out to New York where he meets Jimi Hendrix. Again, Hendrix heads off to England. Randy California and Spirit released their first album in 1968. Randy California is 16 when the album comes out. Jimi Hendrix is 26 at this point. And Ed Cassidy, the drummer, is 45. <laughs> Which is just... And if you go look it's back at some It's not too late for the... us, guys. It's not too late. We can make it happen. When he came out to New York, when Ed Cassidy, the drummer, came out to New York, he was playing with Cannonball Adderley and Thelonious Monk. <laughs> like, it's a totally different generation and mad props to the guy like i'm trying to think come up with jokes but like he did it man like, yeah what are you gonna he say he was young and played jazz and then he was he said i got a second chance in my 40s to be in a friggin like rock band and he did it that gives us all hope doesn't it it also <laughs> says i'm just looking at his wikipedia now it's also saying that he formed a band after like before spirit between Cannonball Adderley, right? Something, and, yeah, something yeah, he, in the Red formed, Rooster. Yeah, or... with Taj Mahal and Ry Cooter, who are right. also just like major dudes. Man, yeah. these guys are this guy's definitely a plugged in, plugged in guy, right? Yeah. Well, he also had a shaved head. It wasn't, I mean, presumably it was because he was losing his hair, but then he shaved his head, which now seems very, very normal. But I think back then that was a baller move on its own to be a cue ball. Yeah. You were like, are you like a Nazi or like what's going on here? (laughs) And I don't know if you had a chance to, uh, to watch any of the YouTube videos of Spirit from, there weren't a ton. So the, this album is not fantastically documented. There's, there's very little that I could find about the production. I mean, really, it's just who's who and, you know, release dates. So there wasn't a ton around the tracks themselves and, and how the production kind of happened. But looking at some YouTube videos from the late 70s and, and early 80s of Spirit and, and looking at all these guys in their 20s and the, this, this drummer just is just, you know, 50... 55 year old bald dude just just you know tearing it up it was uh it's just funny if you have a chance to go and check it out he does like he has a strange like i'm looking at some pictures of him now like he's kind of like got a uh like a, a little bit of like a professor professor xavier vibe right but oh yeah also yeah. like a little bit of like uh he should be leather clad and riding like a motorcycle with a sidecar <laughs> apparently he always dressed in black as well so he was just too too cool for school but i can't help think of myself like joining a rock band with a bunch of 20 year olds and trying to be cool for me which would be like oh i'm gonna get leather leather pants and like a mohawk and it would just not not come off as very authentic is that what the kids are doing these days adam leather pants and maybe mohawks? which yeah. tells you just exactly where my understanding of what hip is and nobody says hip, so I'm double <laughs> shooting myself. I will say this as a total aside. I live across the street from a high school. Like, directly across the street from me is the entrance to a high school. So every morning I watch this cavalcade of high school-age students, like, walking by. And Careful. I have no fucking idea what they are doing in terms of fashion. or They all look so goddamn weird. It is like... I just look at Wait, him like, isn't grunge? Really? I thought grunge was back, so I could just go raid my closet and be right back there with him and tie a flannel around my waist no, and call it a day. No, I don't think that would work for you. I don't oh, think that would work right. for you. Yeah, I walked into a high school the other day. Courtney is a teacher, and mm-hmm. I felt okay. like I was in a very foreign land. 
it's probably good that you felt like you were in a foreign land. You know, yeah. they, <laughs> Hello, they flagged me immediately. Yeah. <laughs> How do you do today? <laughs> when Burns tried to go in, anyway, <laughs> everything goes back to a Simpsons clip. So, so next week we'll be covering R. Kelly's bumper. <laughs> <laughs> So Spirit is known for <laughs> Spirit's known for at least on this album mixing jazz and rock. And so right at the top here I wanted to give a little clip of an instrumental that they have on the album called Space Child, which I think is is a decent slice of what you would what you would come to expect from from listening to this whole album. So let's spin up a little bit of Space Child. So obviously, first off, we have a uh, we've got an instrumental. There's some moog in there, so we're we're starting off on on a very progressive and and uh, somewhat jazzy start there. Phil, I assumed you would appreciate the presence of the moog yeah, on this, this is album. Like, I thought this was it, it. It sort of reminded me of like Steely Dan a little bit. Something about the keyboards reminded me of like a Steely Dan tune. Um, or something that like might be like a segue. Yeah, it's got the cool like weird theremin synth thing. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought in the in the course of the record, I found this to be like a very interesting. It's not really a breather, right? But it's definitely like it's. Uh, yeah, it's cool. It's it's definitely interesting. And I I think we've we've done a good job of on this podcast is not tying everything back to the Beatles. Granted, we we mentioned. Uh, Gentle Giant more than a handful of times. But in terms of comparing everything to the Beatles, I think the reason I like this album and maybe progressive rock is that, even though I'm going to put it into a box called progressive rock, when you try to look at this album and say, well, pick the one song that represents the sound of the album, that's a substantially difficult task because there are acoustically driven songs there are straight up rock songs. There are one, four, five rock songs. There's, you know, this jazzy space child that we just listened to that's got weird synths in it. There's songs with no drums. So it's it's really interesting to me to hear this album, and it kind of puts a a, a thumbtack in what I think I like about that progressive rock movement and potentially what this album helped kick off in terms of a genre. Yeah, I agree. I actually left feeling like this was a really robust album, even though lengthwise it wasn't super long. You know, so the songs clocked in at three minutes. I think one of them was four minutes, might have been the longest song on the album. But it felt like there was a lot happening and not just for the sake of it. Like a three minute song felt like a little bit of a journey. And I just left feeling like there was like some substance. There was a lot of meat, um, a lot of variety. I thought you know, very seamless the way they went into in and out of different genres, 
different sort of stylings. I actually don't think I would have pegged this as like prog rock if I had heard this without knowing that that was ascribed to them. Um, but the, the psych rock definitely came through like, like Alan, loud and I, clear. I agree. It's like, it's proggy, but it's not proggy in the way that like you come to think of prog rock, right? Like, like yes. it's, it's, it's got like, yeah, exactly. It's got like Jethro Tull and, you know, like ELP elements. There's definitely Beatles-esque stuff. There's even like mamas and papas sort of stuff. There's this jazz element. So yeah, it's, it's proggy, but not, yeah, it's not Heart of the Sunrise. It's not like Pink Floyd's dogs, Tom Sawyer. you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Well, honestly, like, I feel like one of the hallmarks of prog rock is it doesn't let you settle in. Like every time you feel like you're about to settle into something, they're like, we're going to change it up. Well, we're going to change it up. We get progressively, we progressively add things to the song to make it so that you can't just like, it's not a groove. You're not settling into a groove. And that was the thing that I found. Alan, you're right. Especially in these songs that like, normally if I say a two minute song sounded like a five minute song, that's an insult. This is actually a compliment. And that like a two and a half minute song felt like a five minute song because I never settled into this sort of like, uh, I'm going to make a reference here that I think, I think is warranted in that it is somewhat like that unicorns album who will cut our hair when we die. Like in that, like they literally, they never repeat anything on that album. It's like, there's no repeating at all. You just literally never settle into something that you're like, Oh, this is that return to this thing that is comfortable now. And I, I got that kind of vibe from this album of like, it always is moving you forward, moving you forward, moving you forward. You're not like looking back to that like comfortable hook that came from the beginning of the song. It happens sometimes, but it's not the prevalent feel of the album. There's that one point where <laughs> I think it's in the song we just listened to where it just straight up feels like it's starting over after like two minutes. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> but but yes, for the yeah. most part, I, I definitely agree. I, I also made, I independently made that unicorns connection too, Tom. I think that's a, an interesting touchstone from whatever it is, 30 years later, and not exactly what you would call prog rock, I think, the Unicorns album, that is, but definitely weird. Weird pop is how I usually describe that Unicorns mm-hmm. record, and I think that's a that's approximately how I would describe this to people because, and, and one of the reasons I liked it, we're all alluding to it, is that it was a pastiche of styles and flavors and, and dense in that sense. And as a musician myself, I've always liked... I don't like being beholden to one genre or one type of song or any of that stuff. Yet, I I admit as a listener, sometimes it's great to have an album that is very consistent, you know, journey and mood. But at the same time, I tend to respect the writing of stuff that just goes all over the place. Flights of fancy of the band. And that's what this felt like to me. It's interesting, Rob. My my note on this was it's like they took the 70s and put it in a blender. And then just, totally. you know, poured it out into your cup. And the fact that it totally. came out in 1970, yeah, like it foretold yeah. a lot of what the 70s was going to sound great like. Point. Yeah, that's that's funny. I, I, I'm kind of glad this is surfacing because it makes me feel like I'm not insane. I, I was writing down and I don't like to make associations to other bands all the time because I feel like it is sort of it cheapens the comparisons a little bit. But I. I was jotting down all the bands that this reminded me of, whether they came before or after. And it was everything from, you know, I had Zappa, Zeppelin, mm-hmm. Steely Dan, um, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. I mean, like, they definitely, I, I and, and again, yeah, some of that was coming, this was coming before a lot of those bands, you know, came onto the scene. So, su- super interesting. The, 
I think this really reminded me, this was a new record for me. I think most of us are, were coming to this pretty fresh. I think, Adam, you mentioned that you had heard one or two of the tunes a bit. But this was totally fresh for me. I don't think I'd ever heard any one note of this record before this week. And I had heard of the band Spirit. That was basically yeah. all I could really say. I've heard of them from the Led Zeppelin lawsuit, but like right. not a single oh, note right. of their music. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. Okay, yeah. We should, so we should, we should touch on that, right? They were involved in a lawsuit around Stairway to Heaven kind of recently where it was alleged that Jimmy Page took – Jimmy Page, that old chestnut, took something, took something <laughs> from one of their other songs, not on this record – they have, I think that was eventually struck down in court, right? They lost that battle. I believe so. Arpeggiating they through did, an A minor they chord. They did open for Led Zeppelin, though, on, like, the Led Zeppelin 3 tour or something like. Well, based on all our knowledge from our previous Led Zeppelin episodes and others about Jimmy Page's <laughs> wanton stealing of songs <laughs> and riffs, it's not unbelievable. But having listened to their song, I believe it's called Taurus, next right. to Stairway, I, I personally don't think it's relevant yeah you can't you can't copyright a chromatic walk down and then pick through a chord i mean yeah. everybody you know and besides Stevie Wonder, when jimmy page uh, like, plays yeah. it at a time like that it's a different right. song you know but <laughs> they stole the feel more than anything on that, that. yeah right <laughs> but i would but i was gonna say that in addition you're right i would i would hesitate to put it in the prog rock category although it was definitely unsettling in a lot of ways, and almost like Lovecraftian in it, in the way it was there has a creeping dread to a lot of the lyrical themes and stuff. But what it made me think of, and made reminded me that I w- have always wanted to kind of get a little deeper into, is this batch of '70s bands. I don't know if you want to call them almost Americana rock. Not that they're all American, but bands like Big Star or 10CC. I don't know if you guys are familiar with these bands. They have like elements of prog, elements of songwriting, elements of acoustic. A little bit of Argent in there from the previous. Definitely hear the Argent. Oh, yeah. Zombies. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Some of, the, some of the organ sounds on like Mr. Skin gave me a real like, is it called Hold Your Head Up? Yeah. Oh, totally. yeah. Hold okay. your head yeah. up. Yeah. 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 That's a great <laughs> tune. Yeah. <laughs> I also, I think that it is worth mentioning that like this album is a sort of. Uh, frenetic it might not be the right word but it is a like sort of like a genre shifting showcase but then two members of the band went on to do just like the most stock drag bullshit ever like one of the guys went on to be in nazareth yeah john john locke at john 345 locke. years old he yeah he's <laughs> on nazareth, nazareth. Yeah. Which and like well, also what was their big tune? Hurts. Help me out. They were what Love was the, Hurts. Was that was Love Hurts. But he like, was oh. he wasn't even he was no, I'm sorry, he was post Love Hurts. And then okay. the bass player who I actually thought did a pretty goddamn good job, um, yeah, that guy man. Mark Andes, he went in on to join Hart, but he oh. wasn't Dreamboat Andy style Hart. He was 1983 to 1993 era Ooh. Hart. He was like, All I want to do is make love to you, and like, what about love? What yeah. About yeah, he first of all, totally everybody stopped. on stage had guitars without headstocks. Yeah. You remember those guitars <laughs> yeah, in the eighties? Hold on a second. I assume <laughs> I assume that that version of Love Hurts is the the one I'm thinking of. I I, I didn't know the band name offhand, and that is pretty lame. But I like the lame. song Love Hurts as a song that goes way back. That was recorded by many artists throughout. I think the Everly Brothers did that one. I think Graham Parsons did that one. That's a solid tune. You are correct. The the most commercially ses- successful version of Love Hurts was that band Nazareth. It's the okay. one that you 
think of when you think of yeah. love hurts. Yeah. But he didn't even get the cash in for that, you know. Right. <laughs> if somebody said, "Hey, you can write love hurts or Doctor Sardonicus," I'd be like, "Well, do I want to be musically fulfilled or do I want to make money? What <laughs> make some cash?" No, but again, he wasn't even in the band when they did Love Hurts. He was post Love Hurts Nazareth, so he was just <laughs> playing Love Hurts, but not actually getting the royalties on it. Uh, so, Tom, that's a that's a great uh, point there about the, just how much the bass rocks in this. And so, I want to jump into our first tune here that we're going to look at from our focus list which is the first song on the album. It's called Prelude, Nothing to Hide. Listen to the tone and the fatness of when everything comes crushing in. I know you must be wake Right, so that's, man, I love that, right? You start off acoustic, beautiful, and then it all comes it all comes in and just and it hits you. And listening on, so I, I listened to this entire album on really loud, really good headphones, and then I also pumped it through like a home theater system so the bass would, you know, rattle me. And it was, it was a great experience in both cases. Meanwhile, your kids are like hiding under the bed upstairs. <laughs> I want to sleep, dad. <laughs> Shut up. I'm doing research. So Adam, interestingly, my, I listened to this on my, like, I have like some vintage 70s speakers in my garage. And like, that was the optimal listening experience it was like pumping it through the 70s yes. speakers through like, you know, I got the, the, um, the, the whole unit with my turntable and everything, but I, I clearly had the vinyl, but like that was the way to listen to it. And when the bass kicked in, I was like, the tone of the bass made me think of David Bowie, made me think of like early seventies Bowie. That's exactly what I was just going to say. Uh, when it dropped in, it immediately gave me like a Bowie vibe. And I wanted to get like, Rob, where does like what Bowie records would have come out just before this? What would Bowie, this would be early. Making? This would be early. Yeah, this is pre-Hunky Dory even, right? I'm not, I don't have the discography right in front of me, but I don't even think Man Who Sold the World came out until like 1971. So this would have maybe been Space Oddity would have been out there in the 60s. Oh, wow. That's like very early Bowie. That's like very, the earliest yeah. Bowie, right? So, well, in, pretty so close. in some ways, this is contemporary to, to like this Ab- sound, right? Ab- absolutely. Uh, definitely yeah, contemporary. That's, that's, yeah. yeah. But yeah, the bass was super satisfying. I was as I do a, think as, he plays with yeah. a pick, and I'm not trying to be crass <laughs> here. No, but I'm almost positive that he is driving the shit with a pick. I listen, Alan. I I will stand by the statement that I made before. It's not that playing the bass with a pick is not hot, but it makes it harder to be hot. This is hot. Picked bass yeah. or not, this is hot bass. <laughs> just, just confirming it. Yeah, Man Who Sold the World came out in nineteen November of nineteen seventy, which I think is pretty similar to this. And Space Oddity okay. would have been the year before. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely made some notes as to the bass playing. I thought it shined all throughout. One of the songs, 
I think it was Animal Zoo, which as opposed to I don't know what kind of zoo you would be referring <laughs> I made to. The otherwise, same thought. I was like, well, what? <laughs> what kind of zoo? Anyway, but yeah, that there's like a few bass breaks in there that just slay. And yeah, the bass really shined all throughout. This, I think that song, this was a killer opening track. Like it just, yeah. it, I was very much hooked right away. It was a great mood setter and a great table setting for what the rest of the album was going to be like too. It kind of, it had that pastiche feel. It had that big kick in, got me excited for the rest of it. It was weird. So can we make a comment about the fact that the line that they say on the big kick in is... <laughs> swastika plug in your ear swastika plug in your wear is the opening line that they Wait, kick what? in the oh swastika yeah he says swastika that's the first line that he says when everything kicks in great did we review a neo-nazi album here? and the guy had a shaved head swastika <laughs> plugs plug in your wear jealous stars in your pants top turning nothing to bear except the view or the dare We've got nothing to hide. Oh, that don't make like any sense. But lyrics, like, right? who comes out with the word swastika? They're like, yeah, that's the word that was like. By the way, so I, many other three syllable words. That I believe just that uh, the drummer was a World War II veteran. <laughs> I thought you were going to say World War One. No, I'm sorry. No, he served in the Navy during World War II. He was a World War II veteran, and the opening wow. line swastika in it. Well, I mean, he's, he's, I guess, I guess he has privileges. PTSD. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, something about your hands and your pants as well. What is it? Uh, I I probably should have. Swastika plug in your wear, jealous stars in your pants. Jealous star. I thought he said like swollen hands in your pants. Well, I mean, <laughs> side two starts with <laughs> side two starts with space child, and it is then followed by when I touch you. <laughs> and then what is Mr. Skin in there? Somewhere? Actually, if you read these song titles like a sentence, space child, when I touch you, street worm, life has just begun. Morning will come, soldier. Right? Like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Phil, that is genius. Yep. Well, <laughs> All right. Well done, sir. My only other note on this track was how the piano is layered in. And I, I love it when bands add piano to like a heavy rock portion of a song, but it doesn't sound it doesn't sound like vaudeville ragtime. Like they somehow keep that rockin' feel, but there's still piano in there. It's, it's like something the I feel like the Black Crows do that pretty well, too, the, the way they mix in piano. I, I have a question. All right. So at like 155 in this song, does anybody else feel like it sounds like he says, fuck it? I think he might say I, funky, but it sounds like he says, fuck it. So there was a reviewer on uh, from. Yeah, it's a hard panda one side. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, a guy from our friend Nick Tosh's. From Rolling Stone also assumed that it was that. I listened to it so many times and I was like, he says fuck it. He does not say funky. Like they might be like, oh yeah, we said funky. It's like you get played on the radio. But he says fuck it. Definitely. <laughs> there's there's one other thing I want to point out on this track, which is like, and this is something that happens uh, a few other times on the album, which like I really dug this album, but like this repeating trope bugged me and i can only assume that they did it on purpose 
So there's that build starts at like two minutes and 30 seconds in the song where they're kind of doing like a build up and they're like, and they don't hit the payoff. note. They like kind of they, yeah. they short of the payoff note, and I was like, "You, I'm right there. Just give me the payoff note." And they don't give it to me. I don't understand why the choice. They keep jumping thirds, right, or fifths, or what, whatever it is. But they keep jumping. You're right. And there's there's the, a note that would kind the of obvious close note out the octave, out. Yes. right? Right. And they don't hit I it. Totally. Yes. I totally dig that. Yeah. I I I heard that. Yeah. Well, well I think there's something to be said for leaving something on the bone. You know. I, I guess, but like, I don't know. It's like, why are you going to build if like, right. It's like, you know, I don't know. It's like pulling out right before climax, not to be too vulgar about it, but like, you're right there. You're right there. I think in a lot of situations, that's a good idea. <laughs> Fair enough. I guess if you're like a rock star in 1970, you probably wouldn't be doing that a whole lot. So we, we're on our, our first track there. We want to keep this thing moving along to the next song, which was technically considered the hit. Now, let me put that in context. Yeah, please do. This is Nature's Way that we're going to listen to in a minute. Wait, wait. This, this song's called Nature's Way? Can it's called you believe Nature's it? Way? Are you sure it's Nature's Way? Nature's <laughs> Way? On, is it? <laughs> <laughs> this peak, so the album peaked at number 63 on the Billboard charts. This particular song, the hit, or I really should say what they're most known for, peaked at 111 mm. on the Billboard charts. Sounds and that right. was even that's that all was, wheelhouse. That was three years later because Nature's Way I think was a B side, and they realized it was getting it was a little popular, so they re-released it in '73. So let's listen to a little bit of the quote-unquote hit of Nature's Way. Nature's Way, the big hit. Nature's what are your Way. Thoughts? That's it, it is. In case you didn't know, I should go through and count. How I many did times the they calculations. Say oh, yeah, oh, they God, say I love it you, Tom. Twenty-one I times in the song, not including the weird off-time background vocals where he's like, "It's Nature's Way, Nature's Way." Right, right. Not including those. Twenty-one <laughs> times in the song, in a hundred and fifty-nine-second song. That is a Nature's Way every seven point five seconds. The course of this song. That is too many Nature's Ways. A true hell, data man? scientist at work here. Uh, I couldn't get over that. 
I like it. Like. This is my favorite. This is my favorite song. To me, it's no, the best. I like the song. Don't it was it was the best overall find, and I think what I liked about it is how creepy it was. To me, this is this is the feeling I got. This typified the feeling I got through a lot of the record, that a lot was harmonious and right, but there would be an element. In this case, it was the main line of the song. It's nature's way of telling you something's wrong. That felt very unsettling. And I think I said the word Lovecraftian already. I feel like you could repurpose this for one of those modern A24 horror movie soundtracks. <laughs> it's what does that mean, man? That that made me feel <laughs> weird walking around. Rob, I totally see this as like a uh, acoustic cover with like a girl with a twee voice, like singing it while like horrible shit's happening on screen. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> This is nature's way. Oh, God, no. Rob, this definitely gave me the same sort of, like, uneasy dread of, like, pre-Dark Side, Pink Floyd, mm. and, and maybe even some of the stuff on the wall to that point. Like, even, like, like it just feels like it's darker than is even being sort of directly laid upon you. I mean, the song ends with, like, 15 seconds of coughing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Well, that, that yeah. brings up actually another interesting point is that like the sound layering and sound engineering choices made on this album, I thought were really cool. And Especially for mm-hmm. 1970. Yeah, they really yeah, they put a lot of like, you know, uh, I'll, I'll put the worst example of it out there, um, which is like uh, Stevie Wonder's Living for the City, um, where they have like that whole like, you know, bus pulling scene, up that scene vignette, going on. Yeah. Which is garbage. That's a great song, but that's a garbage (laughs) interlude there. But like this gave you that sort of like other stuff is happening besides the music feel, which I thought was like really cool and layered. Yeah, dude, can we talk a little more about the production? I don't know if we know anything about the state the band was in when they recorded this. I did hear one interesting anecdote about the producer, this guy David Briggs. He's most known for producing a couple Neil Young records after the Gold Rush and everybody knows right. this is yeah. nowhere. Yep. And when I dug into his his story, apparently he met Neil Young because he picked him up hitchhiking one day and it spurred a <laughs> lifelong friendship that led to him producing these albums. <laughs> this is this would possibly be when right uh, Neil Young is already famous. <laughs> And a member of CSNY, uh, likely. Possible, yeah. It is no, oh, no I don't know. No, I don't know, man. When did everybody know? 70? No, he produced or... Neil Young's first solo record, so it had to be Okay. It, right. I guess it could oh. have been CSN. Neil Young yeah. was in Buffalo Springfield. So I think you're commenting right. on the fact that even famous Neil Young probably continued to hitchhike. But can we also <laughs> yes, that is what I'm can we also point out that amongst the spectrum of hitchhikers you could see on the side of the road, Neil Young is a scary looking dude. He yes. is. Yes. I would keep driving, even if I knew it was Neil Young. <laughs> Six five, that straight hair hanging in his face. Right. Some weird package on his back. But but certainly one of the things this album benefits from is the band or the producer or both are not afraid to try things and be very, very, very strange. So I was just curious if we knew anything about the money situation coming into this or were they just feeling their oats or was this just completely experimental? How much longer did they go on after this? Anything like that. So, yeah, there was a breakup, I believe, in 73. They called it quits, I think. And then they reformed with a you know a bunch of different different players. I know that after this album was released, Randy California went and did a side project because he fell into some depression after Hendrix uh, died. 
So that was a big deal for him. Now during yeah, but during this album being created, I'm I'm not 100% sure. I wasn't able to find a ton on what was going on. I think Ed Cassidy had that social security money that he was able to put towards right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he did a reverse mortgage. <laughs> 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 Oh, Oh, poor Ed. I mean, Ed rips, though. I mean, like, he does. Yeah, we're making fun. But I mean, like, Ed has Ed Cassidy has a more storied career as a musician and apparently is a badass, like, you know, serving in the Navy during World War II. Let's imagine something really like cool happened. And he did awesome stuff there too, right? Like, no, I think the comedy of him being old is what Adam said earlier, which is you can imagine one of us now being in a band with these young whippersnappers and trying to fit in with them, let alone that one's your stepson. Like, that's going to be a very awkward scenario. Yeah, asking what, him before every gig, do I look cool? Well, also like uh, after the gig, when like all the chicks are coming up, he's just like, "Hey, uh, can we uh, maybe not talk about about this? Uh, just let's right. just keep this keep this between us, all right?" <laughs> Is that your priest? <laughs> <laughs> so something I also like specifically about this tune and this album in general. It's kind of a cliche to go sit in a dark room and close your eyes, but you really hear a lot of the intricacies and the nuances that they deliberately did. So in this Nature's Way song, at 105, there is a part where you hear the drums come in and they go da 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 on like a timpani, and that that's kind of the the timpani on the record in general is very cool, very nice. Well, because they they had a percussionist too, right? Like they have a percussionist and a drummer. Right. Right. The second time around in the song that they do that, not only does the cadence change, but instead of the drums, the guy is doing dead notes on the bass. So instead of a drum going da 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 da, it's the bass going da 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 da, and it sounds like a turntable actually if you listen really close, and it's just a really cool sound as it comes into the whatever it is, the third chorus or something. So. Uh, I totally geeked out, as you can tell. This was a very fun album to do that on with headphones. So moving on, we Rob had, had, had mentioned just how weird they got. And the next track I want to listen to is a track called Love Has Found a Way, which in my mind is the most experimental, the weirdest, and actually my favorite track on the album. There's no drums on it. Buckle up. This is Love Has Found a Way. Waves are crashing on the sea Lemons flashing on how it should be Some are reaching for the gun Some are searching for the sun Love has found another's way Knew it would make it somehow They reached into the bag. They got all the instruments, and they they did their thing. I know it's a weird 
tune, and I don't know why I love it so much. I think there's a couple key points, but I, I want to get your your feedback on this. What are your thoughts? Well, can I say that Tom, I believe, said earlier they took the '70s and threw them in a blender. Love that. Literally, when this song, when the sort of chorus of this song kicks in for the first time, it felt like they were sampling another song and layering it on top of the weirdness yeah. they had begun to produce. The chorus definitely was, I don't even know what the word for it was. It was noticeable. Something something was happening. I wrote, I literally wrote down repeatedly, Steely Dan from Camp I a Thrill. There was something about that, they took some kind of flavor from which I mean this is probably recorded before that album potentially I'm not sure but yeah definitely a departure of sorts in in that chorus um I I thought it was an RA tune I've actually found this to be a little bit of the low point of the album for me um but you know again I think that's it's easy to say with with an album where I thought it had a lot of snap so outs. Phil I'm guessing you love this song because it, it sounds like a guy is actually playing a task cam. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, backwards tape. I mean, there is definitely a backwards tape machine played through easily the first half of the song. Right? Yes. Yeah. It's like, a little distracting. What, what I honestly, what I can't tell is if it was recorded to be played backwards. Because there are times when it, like, it really settles in, for lack of a better way to say it, where you're like, I think they're hitting changes now, right? Like, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, this was not my favorite song on the record, but it was one of them. And I do think, like, again, like, we've just said a lot of these names. Like, I feel like this was incredibly Zappa without being Zappa, right? Like, it sort of had its own identity. I feel like in a lot of ways, this sort of, like, I think this is more successful than Revolution Number 9, Right, like it's a more successful execution of like how far out there can we get? It's a low bar, pretty low bar. <laughs> yeah, agreed, agreed. <laughs> yeah. Subtitle yeah. to this episode is low bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I I thought this song was, uh, it definitely got my attention. Like this was the one on the first run through that I was like, holy shit, what the hell is happening here? <laughs> right, so like, this I, is not normal. <laughs> I'm just gonna point out again that they did that thing that annoys me, where they did the build. With that kind of weird, like, and then they hit the same three three times in a row. They hit the same peak note. They don't actually get to the note of the peak. They hit like a, the right below the peak, and then they do it two more times in a row. And I was like, I it has to have been intentional, but it really left me wanting that, like, just because it would have it would have blended so well into like the forward movement of the song, and the fact that they didn't hit it made me feel like the change was more abrupt than it should have been. So that was, that was like my, my one note on that. Besides the fact that I found that the tape machine noise was a little distracting, a little grating. Well, and it dredged up some like horrible memories of like <laughs> trying to record with the task game 388 and Phil just like rewinding the tape at full volume. And it's getting like <laughs> in my head. Yeah, for, some like reason that sound for some reason that sound doesn't bother me. Yeah. Was that a setting on that where you could just make it do that constantly? Yeah, <laughs> or was right. it like, I'm not familiar with the board, but was there, you could manually no, it, wind it, so the it, tape? It, it just a, had like a, a forward and a rewind, you know what I mean? Just like a fast forward rewind. But for whatever reason, when you would do this, it was like everything was on. So like yeah, if you hit rewind. There was rewind, no volume control in the rewind. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> he should have told us yeah. to take our headphones off at that point. But yeah, <laughs> but you know, Phil would just be like, 
Bad take. No! It's like, oh my god, don't stop. It's so loud. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I wish you guys had recorded some of that. Some of that, the uh, the album making behind the well, scenes. Well, I mean, stuff. I, you know, I still have that task camp somewhere. So if you ever want to like come over and like just eat some think- marijuana gummies and then fall asleep <laughs> in the corner. <laughs> as long as we can listen to Love Has Found a Way first and then we'll turn on the and task. Just camp. think of the sound of like your reality shattering. And like, that's basically what it is. It's just like, all of a sudden, like everything, you know, just deconstructs and you're like, oh my God, I can't handle this anymore. <laughs> Those are the guns. And also, yes, I was pretty high. At the time, so <laughs> <laughs> this song also has, in terms of, of waiting for a payoff, I think it might even be in like the last three seconds of the song where at the very end they're going, and love has found a way. And they keep building and the very there's this harmony that holds and at the very last second it jumps up and like completes a chord and again it might be in the last 3 seconds but to me that was like the hairs on the back of my neck stood up i was like okay you've you've waited 2 minutes and 40 seconds for this here's your here's your reward and it's that guy hitting that super high note that completes just for that time chord. All right, anything else on this uh, this bizarre conglomeration of noises and instruments? You know, I will, I will point this out because I've complained about this on a couple of other albums, on that Zombies album particularly, is that they do a really good job of the off-cadence um, other melody with other vocals going on over the chorus. And it doesn't run over itself and it really actually fits pretty well in a way that like doesn't muddle the two and they don't get lost in each other. And I thought that was very tastefully done. Um, And it's hard to do. It's hard to have that sort of like, you know, two beats uh, later, you're sort of repeating the same thing with the same line, but with a different melody in it. And it worked incredibly well. I thought it was incredibly tastefully done. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the arrangements were really nice vocally. Um, they sound it. It came across as really smart and well thought out, and also well executed. Sometimes there were times where it was maybe a little. I don't know if "pitchy" is the right word, where it was almost veering into. Is this a little out of tune? Or are they going for a little bit too much? But I liked it, frankly, and yeah, that stuff was good. Well, you know, to to, to throw in a song that we we're not talking about, which is "Animal Zoo," um, which I loved. I th- I thought it was a great song, but. The vocals at the end of that, where he's doing like a uh, like, much too fat and a little too long. That, like, it works super well, and it's like that's the comment I made at the beginning is it's almost like they're begging you to not take them seriously. It's like, that was a a prime example. And I feel like there's a couple of examples of that where they're just like begging you to not take them seriously, but they're like, we're super goofy. And you're like, yeah, you are. But like, this is actually also really cool stuff. And it's really good. (laughs) Do you know that nasally voice guy who did the much too fat, a little too long. I feel like they kind of overused it a little bit. And I I think we're gonna talk about another song where it 
it bothers me more called life has just begun but is that do you know which vocalist is which because they, they do have multiple vocalists right yeah so there's there's two guys that are the main and then there's a third that backs everything up i don't know off the top of my head who was who, my guess is it's ferguson who has the nasally voice who kind of starts that meaning he's the guy who starts love has found a way and then maybe mm-hmm. randy california is the guy that comes in with the main line i'm guessing but yeah, looking at the at the the liner notes here, I think that makes sense. And for our, our percussionist friend, I feel like this was his big this was his big tune as well because there were xylophones on this. Am I wrong? Right? Mm. Is that the or, or Phil? You're you're my Wurlitzer electric piano in, in the mix. I wasn't sure if it was an electric piano or if the guy was actually playing some type oh, of. I don't xylophone. know. It doesn't come to mind. Is it maybe near the end of the song? Just all throughout. I mean, there's different things where there's kind of some counter melodies. So like throughout, and I, I wasn't really able to tell. Let's just assume it was the percussionist crushing it. He's percussion it. Percussion. Uh... Oh. <laughs> well done. All right, let's move on to Mr. Skin, right? So this is our, our next one here. So let's uh, let's run a few minutes. A few minutes. <laughs> How about a few seconds of this? God, that Hammond. Come on. I love Hammond. You guys know me. This is like, this yeah, song was written for me. If, My God. Adam, Hammond, come on. This really does out. have like that Hammond organ sound, right? right? Like, you know what I mean? It's like, you, you think like, like uh, we, we joked earlier about Argent, right? Like, or or some, there's a lot of yes songs that I feel like the interlude comes. It's a roundabout has the, like the breakdown. Yes, like, that sounds really badass. I, I also <laughs> I want to point out that there was one time where we played a gig in college, um, oh at God. like a you know like an outdoor festival, on like the most rickety stage possible. And Adam is like, no, I'm bringing my like 600 pound ham and organ, <laughs> and I'm going to put it on the stage. And I thought how we were going to we... die the entire it was time. worth it. Did we rent a pickup truck? How did we get that? I have no idea how we got that. Actually, I don't know. Didn't Mike D? No. Who the hell was that? Was that the Hammond that was sitting in our garage in North Street? Yeah, that was. It was an. It was like an A100. It wasn't the full B3. It was like a a mini one, but still, it it was huge. It wasn't chopped or anything, but my god. That was a beast. I'm just, just picturing sh- me driving in a Camry with, <laughs> with that hanging out of the trunk and like <laughs> bungee cord. I remember showing up with that Hammond and like everyone's People like looking at the stage and looking for like at a 25 minutes. Like, How set. are you going to make that work? And you're like, no, 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 we got it. Don't worry about it. Yeah, like, yeah we're Alan, for a 20 <laughs> for a 25 minute set. Yes, exactly. Well, we're going to do Paranoid Android. I'm sure you can fit the Hammond into that somewhere. I, we also did what uh, 
she came in through the bathroom window or something like I that. Think, yeah. yeah, that was yeah. that was a solid twenty minutes of college uh, college covers. I think we had like a forty minutes. <laughs> we did have like a forty minutes. That was good. No, wasn't that when we did whipping post? Is that when you brought the hammock? That's what. Yes, we brought hammock. Yes. We closed with whipping post. That's yes. what it was for. Yeah. And well, Wait, are you referring to Skid Fest? We're referring to Skid Fest, yes. University you of fucking Delaware. Hammond to Skid Fest. <laughs> Hammond to Skid Fest. Dude, they basically had like six card tables like <laughs> thrown together at the stage. And I was like, no, I put a Hammond on that. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I got it. We just, it will be the anchor for we, the stage. If we get six people and they all just put it down at the exact same time, everything will be cool. <laughs> just put it down at the same time. And it, it worked. It worked. <laughs> That's my favorite, favorite memory of all time. Anyway, well uh, done. back to Mr. Skin. My note on this is uh, it's like Alice Cooper covering a Steve Winwood song that was arranged by <laughs> Earth, Wind, and Fire. That was, <laughs> Dude, that's funny, Tom. I So I had something similar where I had uh, Traffic and Tower oh. of Power. Oh, um, yeah. All right. So the Steve Winwood thing is in the pocket, yeah. But I had Tower of Power, Steve Winwood. Um, I like this. I thought this song kicked ass. Like it was, it was cool. a little, you know. I think songs like this, you can only get so much mileage out of before you, it gets a little bit grating. Um, but you know, I love funk. I love this kind of school of music, and they did it right. They didn't do it in some cheesy way or just for the sake of it. In the same way that, like, as we're talking about this, like genre crossing. I sometimes, in a crass way, think of a band like Fish that does this kind of thing a lot. But I think they kind of fall flat often in their attempt to say, hey, we're going to do bluegrass, and then the next song we're going to do reggae. I think that this group does it... They, I think they've picked their spots really well, and they're able to execute on these different changes that, that they're trying to do. Um, but it also, in listening to this, wasn't surprising that... Um, Randy California, I guess, is the guy that has like the jazz background that, you know, he was coming in with some chops and some, you know, point of view on, you know, jazz ish music. So I think that ultimately made sense. I I found it to be a, what probably the most straight ahead 70s rock song on the record. It doesn't right. mean I didn't like it. I know it had a key change in it, but it felt it felt a little more just in the pocket of 70s and just since we've already mentioned all these other 70s bands, I wrote down Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Could have been a Blood, Sweat, and yes, Tears song. Yes, with the horns. Yeah. yeah, the horns definitely made it a Blood, Sweat, and Tears sounding tune. Yeah, but again, I, I liked that the title creeped me out. So like the whole time <laughs> this record was, there was always some element about these songs that made me feel a little, about it. little unsettled. A little off. What yeah. part about Dr. Sardonicus did, <laughs> right? did you think wasn't going to creep well, you You know out? what? We haven't even talked about how this is one of the best truth and advertising record albums I've ever seen. Because this cover where they're dressed like, like cats or whatever, but with a yeah, weird photo yeah. effect, uh-huh. plus the name 12 Dreams of Dr. Sardonicus. I feel like it's truth and advertising of what you are about to get. So uh, a quick question. So obviously I, I listened to this on Spotify and there's like a couple of extra tracks and, you know, I was, I went out of my way not to listen to those. There's 12 tracks. So this song rougher road was not on the record. It ends on soldier, right? Correct. Okay. Rougher road was not included until the 96 re-release of the CD. Gotta have that, you know, Hi. <laughs> for your, <laughs> for your nerdy. I, I also have to say that that for some reason in this tune the sax solo works for me. 
I generally don't like saxophone solos outside of jazz and big band and funk. And maybe it could be that this is a little funky, so it works, but it I, I feel like it, the eighties was was the the spot where you would have these terrible sax solos in kind of elevator mm-hmm. music rock songs. This worked though. I think the seventies was the last gasp for great sax solos though. You got David Bowie's <laughs> Young <laughs> Americans, you got Yeah, the right. Sax right. solo in I don't know, Jungle Land or something, Clarence Clemens, you know, you got some good sax solos in the seventies. So now something interesting about this album. So Randy California was kind of touted as like a guitar virtuoso. The fact that that Hendrix liked him, I don't, and probably deliberate, and and I didn't listen to much of the the prior three albums, but there wasn't a lot of guitar work on this album that really stood out to me. And that may actually be a testament to a great musician and a great guitar player, right? If your ability to shred doesn't match what you're doing you know i think of wasn't rivers cuomo apparently like a shredder but you listen to weezer and there's like you know, three albums across 12 or uh, three solos across like five albums that's interesting right? so, like, yeah yeah knowing your spots so that's well we kind of talked about this too when we did the when we did the police where you know andy summers is a sick guitar player but you don't really think about the guitar work in those songs at all but it's really holding everything together and it's there's a lot of backbone and it's it's doing a lot, but it's not trying to, you know, shred or be the prominent, you know, voice of the music. Right. So, and I, I think the same thing kind of applies here. Yeah, I mean, like taste is kind of the touchstone for this album. I mean, I feel like it's all, you know, everybody is finding a good spot, and it goes back to what I was talking right. about with like, you know, weird background off-centered backup vocals over a main vocal line, but they find their spot and they don't run over each other and they make it so that you can pick each piece out and everything is clear. There's no muddling on this album. And for an album that has so many changes and so much going on, you'd think that it'd be a little bit more muddled than it is, but it's really not. It's actually all pretty distinct. All right. So we're going to bring it home here on the last tune we're going to talk about. And I had included this in our what we call our focus list uh, because this had I had considered this the low point on the album. And then after listening to it four or five more times, I started to like it more. So we'll see what happens. We're gonna spin a tune called "Life Has Just Begun." Oh, hey. Hey, Kiawa, tell me what you think about this tune. Whoever. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised you found this to be the low point. Honestly, I, I like this song a good amount. Like, it has so many changes 
the first time through, I'm not sure what it was. It might have even been Hey Kiawa just annoyed me. <laughs> and <laughs> then I listened to it more, and I was like, oh, okay, they're actually doing some stuff here. And I went and looked up that Kiawa is apparently a Native American tribe from out west, and they the song is about uh, the injustices that they've suffered. So there's also a, a social aspect to it as well. I believe it's Kiowa. Is the way that you pronounce Ooh, the tribal name there, you. Adam? Uh, so thank you. I just outwoke you. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> we um, need a sound effect. <laughs> Woke I was thinking <laughs> it would be really funny to have some of those sound effects. You know, like a, like a oh, yeah. shock jock, <laughs> Jim Cramer. Cramer yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. like a me so horny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just like make him like real bad. You know? I like how that's a drop you were sitting on, Tom. Yeah. Oh, of course. You know. Yes. I'm just you trying to be a long time. Yeah, I was like, listen, yeah. two live crew is the album next week, so like, let's throw that out. There, right. Well, <laughs> right. if we get a soundboard, it will be used to isolate and uh, embarrass you guys in future podcasts. I assure you, <laughs> <laughs> whatever random things you said out of context. <laughs> just well a, played. Just a. The drop would be going swastika. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, all right. So in the first minute of this song, there are like, I feel like three distinct feels that happen to the first minute of the song, which I really dig. It comes in and there's like, it's like major and the nice guitar picking and like a beautiful harmony. And then I feel like they, I don't think they go to minor, but maybe they put like, the minor seven on top of the major and it makes it kind of had this like little bit of like degraded feel to it and then they cut to like the halftime and like that's all right. within the first minute of the song and like i really dug that that was the thing that i found to be like again it, it comes in in this like if i was listening to a traditional album this was like a doobie brothers album i'd be settling into this and i'm like oh yeah i'm settling right in this is great and then they change it, and I'm like, oh, well, I guess I'm not settling into that, but maybe I'm settling into this. And they change it to halftime. I'm like, oh, well, maybe I'm settling into this now. <laughs> and they really don't let you sort of get your bearings throughout the song. And I, I, I found this to be, like, for me, one of the high points of the album. Like, I, I thought it had really good dynamics. And that the fact that it all happened so quickly didn't feel rushed and didn't feel right. still cohesive. Yeah. Right. So I, I had an interesting experience with this record where I listened to it two or three times, sort of just at work, you know, sort of just like passive listening, but it was still very fresh. Right. So, you know, like I, I think I texted you guys the first time I heard Love Has Found a Way. I was like, what the hell is this? Right. <laughs> but then I, so, and then I gave it, you know, sort of like a sit down listen. And we've talked about this, like furniture music, sort of passive listening versus active listening. I listened to this on a long car ride. Like I went, I went to my first indoor concert in two years over the weekend. Whoa. And it was, you see? I saw Dr. Dog. saw this band, Dr. Dog. You, you know, you've heard. Yeah. Wait, I, I saw you at Yola Tango like a week ago. Oh yeah, that doesn't count. <laughs> Liar! <laughs> no, I do agree that the art of the hall is almost not a. Uh, it's it not yeah, the same. It, it, That's like a high school. Register, gym. yeah. Anyway, it was. It was. I think part of it was the the lockdown, right? Like it being so long since I've been to like a indoor rock show. Uh, also, it felt good because it was like vaccinated, mask city. So I was like, all right, you know, my other choice. I can is, enjoy myself. Well, yeah. my other choice is not do things. Right, so that's my that's my play usually. Yeah, I mean, I played that pretty hard. Anyway, so I listened to this during the ride, 
Um, and it was difficult to listen to on a car ride where you're driving and maybe you're looking at directions, like, because for all the reasons that we're saying we like it, right? Because it doesn't give you the opportunity to settle in. Like, it was a little exhausting. Alan, when you said the record was like 38 minutes long at the top, like, that blew my mind. Because it does feel much longer because there's so much happening. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of, uh, there's just a lot of there there, you know, and uh, I actually flagged this song. I don't have a ton of notes about this song. Um, in fact, I, I'm having trouble like remembering exactly right now what it sounds like in the context of this conversation. But the notes I do have were just, this song is really beautiful. It just, I thought it just sounded, it just sounded really nice. And I don't have much of a uh, critical analysis other than I just thought it was a really nice, pretty beautiful song. So in this song, he does manage to use his giant toms, which I also wanted to bring up. So if you happen to go watch a spirit video, Anytime for the 70s or 80s, you'll notice that our friend Ed, Ed Cassidy, the drummer, has two toms on each side of the drums that are the size of small children's swimming pools. <laughs> like, oh. They are just, uh, it's, I, I laughed in, in the same way that rewatching Scarface, that final scene where he's got that pile of cocaine <laughs> on, the, on the desk, it's so obscenely large that it's not even like, it's a joke at this point for me as an adult to watch it. I watch, I watch these giant toms to the size of this drummer, and I just burst out laughing because maybe one song, and they've got to weigh 60 pounds each. They're huge. So if you have a chance, go go check it out. Well, maybe they watched a, a Rush show and saw Neil Peart and were like, oh, if it's Prague, you have to have like 80 absurd you know, drums set up. So there's one thing that I just I just want to point out. I, I I was waiting for somebody to mention this, but I can't believe it has not been mentioned yet. Is that the fact that Jay Ferguson, the guy who is the percussionist and vocalist in this band, wrote the theme song for The Office, the American version. That's right. I oh, saw that what? last night and forgot to make a note of it. I didn't yes, like, thank you, Tom. New information. Yeah, that's awesome. That has to be like the most listened to of any of the spirit solo or spirit work uh, of oh, all yeah. time. Like, oh yeah, clearly. for yeah. sure. 100%. Yeah. 200 billion listens versus Mr. Skin has what? 68,000 or something. Yeah. I mean, actually like let's name artists that let's, let's name recording artists that if they wrote the office theme song, it wouldn't be their most listened to song. Right. Like, I, like Paul McCartney, Michael fucking right? Jackson would yeah, be yeah, his like, most listened right. to song. It's, it's They're the like millennials shit. who listen to that shit six times a night. Like, right? <laughs> I'll just say it's a great theme too. I think it's it is, very, it is it pretty really solid. Is. Like yeah. I don't. It's short enough that I don't mind listening to it every single time I watch the show. Yeah. Anyway, the instrumentation is a little but, unique as well. Yeah. Like it has a, a playfulness. Yeah, I feel like that had to be made. I was literally waiting for you to bring that up, Adam. I was like, "There's no way that that Adam's not going to bring this up." But like, yeah. Oops. <laughs> How much money do you think he has made off of that? Oh my God! I'm guessing a lot. way more than the spirit what? money, right? Way more. Oh than my the spirit God! Money. He doesn't oh literally. God. Do you think he literally gets paid every time someone plays The Office on Netflix? No, but he put, gets paid every time they play it on syndication on uh, cable. Which I'm, um, hmm. yeah, they've been but doing they that must for a have struck time. some kind of streaming deal. I mean, yeah, like literally, like people just put that on repeat for years in their house. Yeah, hey, listen, I'm sure he is. 
sitting pretty on that. He could probably point to the houses multiple that he has bought <laughs> from the office. Just from you know, I, I saw I, this is going a little off topic, but I saw a little like a YouTube sort of like you know, lunch and learn sort of thing with the guy that wrote the Cheers theme song. And it's a really great story. Yeah. Uh, it's a really a like fun, it, Yeah, it's a great song. Yeah. Uh, dude, the original line, the one that they paid for that, that like the 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 producers were like cool we love the song uh but you got to change the lyrics the uh, the original lyrics were uh singing the blues when the red Sox lose it's a crisis in my life but that was the opening line i was like that's really good i, I feel like i have read the those other lyrics from those other they're verses good, and they're pretty right? depressing yeah there's like are. definitely depths of alcoholism and divorce kind of stuff Oh yeah, the, the the ones they landed on are much more playful. And, I, uh, although I might I might be mixing them up with the Simpsons most tavern version. When the weight of the world has got you <laughs> yeah. down and you want to end your life. <laughs> yes. Adam, I love that you had that just like cocked and ready to go. You're just like, oh, the Simpsons version, I got it. Let's do it. Because <laughs> I've listened to that cassette a thousand times. Flaming anyway. mode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's where, go down all right, the flaming Where liquor in a mug can warm you like a hug. <laughs> I've been watching a bunch of those older Simpsons over the last, like, couple of months. And, like, they really, they're really hilarious. They still hold Yeah, up? like, see, uh, okay. season five, season six. Like, I, I don't want to say it's never going to not be funny. Because of, you know, some of the things we've seen over the last few years, right? right. Some of the realizations. But uh, it is pretty stinking funny. Like, they well, they really land on what the show is around season three or four. And they just knock it out one after the other. To bring years. it back to the album that we're talking about, one of the things that The Simpsons has going for it is, like, the jokes per minute count. It's mm-hmm. they pack in more jokes per minute than any show. And they're all good. It's like you have like seven to eight good jokes in a minute. And like, I feel like this album also has like seven to eight good changes per song. They're just like, ah, this is like an interesting change. It's very dense. Many albums don't have that level of density in terms of the overall complexity of what they're bringing to the table and the entirety of like a sometimes a 50 minute album. And this 38 minute album has more changes in complexity than many bands have in their entire career delightful yeah all right so to round this out i'm not not going to bring everybody down but this is actually kind of inspiring so i was reading about the the outcomes of some of the band members and randy california unfortunately died in 1997 at the age of 45 and as i was reading Uh, was it it aids i had I had this rock star story in my head, and it said, Randy California died in a tragic accident. He drowned. And in my head, I was thinking, oh, in the hot tub, in the pool, on his own vomit. He died saving his 12-year-old son from a rip current in Hawaii. I retract my AIDS comment. <laughs> I'm going to pull that one back. <laughs> Take that one back. Sorry. We can cut that. <laughs> Dude, how unexpected. Dude is a legit hero and the kid survived yep that's right yep he he, he managed to push him back to shore so that is a terrible story but yeah that is a terrible story and i feel like an asshole now sorry (laughs) it's all right because in in the end he's a 
hey, the dude's a rock star and he's a good dude. While we're digging into some of the, you know, items we wanted to know earlier in the podcast, uh, Adam, you would ask about David Briggs and Neil Young hitchhiking. It appears Mm -hmm. that he met Neil Young in 1968. So that's when their hitchhiking encounter occurred. That was 1968 was after Buffalo Springfield broke up the year Crazy Horse released their first record. And 1969 would have been Neil Young's first performance with Crosby, Stills and Nash at Woodstock. So, so yes, he, he was famous Neil Young. He could have pulled a, a bus dude. ticket at that point. He's yep. like, yeah, sure if could've. I wanted to, I'd go Greyhound. Like it's- Harvest <laughs> came out the same year as this record. So, <laughs> yes. That is funny. All right, so we're going to get to the the most exciting part of the podcast every week. We are going to kick it around the room here, and everybody's going to give their vote on whether or not this deserves to be on the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So we are going to throw things over to Phil for your final thoughts. Let's hear it. Yeah, so I'm going to give this a yes. And yes, you should listen to this record, uh, I feel like, before you die. Um, I feel like, and I'll be clear, I wasn't sold coming into the conversation. I feel like the, the excitement has really pushed me over the edge. Um, I think this record is just weird and it's really well done. And I think it gives you a real look into everything that's to come from the seventies. My note on this record would be, this is a sit down and listen to it record. This is not background music. This is a sit down and listen to it record. Oh, it's my turn now? Yeah. Yeah, I was on the fence about this one because I did really enjoy the record. I will certainly listen to it again. But after our conversation, I guess I'm going to go yes because I don't think there are that many records that are this dense with ideas. And this kind of pastiche of a headphone record is important, I think, to understand. And I also think that as we talked about it more, it crystallized in my mind that this is one of those decade, cross-decade spanners. Came out right in 1970. The year itself is not as relevant to me as the fact that it has a foot in a lot of 60s ideas and a lot of 70s ideas sort of simultaneously. So to me, that's always interesting that you can kind of listen to some of these old records and hear the sounds of popular music changing within the context of the record so for that reason i i recommend listening to it before you die tom go for it yeah fuck this album these guys suck <laughs> no i'm kidding i i, I like this album it's good um i found it to be inventive and listenable and that is a hard line to walk it is both inventive and new feeling and enjoyable and so yeah you should listen to it i feel better for having this in my uh, vernacular. Yeah, I'm hundred uh, percent in, I was in very, before I even got through the album, honestly, it just reminded me of so many, so much of the music that I like, but it was sort of a forerunner to a lot of that. So it wasn't, you know, lifting from a bunch of different sources. Like it was somehow setting the table in some way, even if it wasn't doing that intentionally, but it's just very unique. There, there's, I had a hard time finding any any one thing that this sounded like. Um, I enjoyed it. It's definitely going into my rotation. Um, I hadn't heard this album. I'd never even heard of this band, honestly, except for someone mentioned the, the Zeppelin thing before uh, the plagiarism piece. But yeah, glad glad I found out 
Love it. Definitely belongs on the list. Rob, my notes were so similar to yours, right? Which were really like, I'll definitely listen to this again, but like it's it's not for the faint of heart. Like this is this requires. <laughs> Which it's not easy you know? listening. Right. It's not easy right. listening. Yeah. But no, but right. but Tom pointed out it's weird while accessible. I wouldn't say that about a lot of the Frank Zappa records, for example. Very fair. And and other weird weird stuff. So it has an accessibility to it. And I think that if you're a serious music listener, we, we sort of bandied this about before. This is the kind of thing you should put into your into the canon of your brain. Yeah, I agree with everything that's been said. And and the idea that at the start of the podcast, we try to pick one song that kind of encompasses the sound of the album. And the fact that it was so difficult to come up with a song that was a good representation to me is what I love about, I guess, 70s rock and really what this album is. It's got everything I like. It checks a lot of boxes. It's got melody... It's not just one, four, five chord changes. It's got dirty guitars, big bass, harmonies, well-placed synth, horns. I mean, you name it, this album has a lot of it. And it's well-placed and it's well-done. So it is a big yes for me. So congratulations, Spirit. Your album, 12 Dreams of Dr. Sardonicus, does in fact deserve to be on the list of 1001 albums you must hear. So put it onto your frequently played list. So... I was just going to mention, did anyone else struggle a little bit finding this on Spotify? Because it seems like the band Spirit might have two listings. One that only contains this album and another that contains the rest of the discography without this album. No way. I That's why that. I couldn't I find it. I searched for album title and it was unique right. enough. You can it find it. Up, but you I, can find it by the album. But if you just search Spirit, there is a listing for Spirit the Band that in their discography does not include this album. So I just, I don't know why that is, but just a note to the listeners if you're looking for it. Because I had to go to YouTube to find those first two albums. One of them was clear and I forget the other one, but that's very interesting. Thank you. And that's a great, a great little segue there, Rob, as well. So we are going to throw things over to Tom, who's got the Albinator 5000, which will randomly select our album that we're going to listen to for next week. So Tom, what do we got? What do we got for next All week? All right. Let's uh, pull out the app on there's a 5,000. I got that uh, bad boy all ready to go. Got it oiled up. I've been taking it apart and, you know, cleaning out the Making gunk sure it's in the gears. It's, in, it's it. in prime condition. Exactly. You know, listen, this is a very important part of the podcast. We cannot mess this up. All right. So next week, we are going to be listening to Drum Roll, Please. Huh. Once again, I don't know what this is. Um, Madonna, like a prayer? <laughs> uh, no, this is Madonna's like a prayer. <laughs> Next week, we'll be listening to Madonna's like a prayer. Damn. Made so what, yeah, what's on that one? <laughs> Besides like a prayer? Uh, like, like a prayer? <laughs> I guess we'll find Another out. a very I... obscure album that uh, nobody that has heard the of ex- before. What about like a virgin? extent of my... Well, the extent of my Madonna knowledge is like a prayer. What else is on like a prayer? Uh, give me one second. I'm going to pull that up. Let's oh, yeah, track, do some track listing Wikipedia. I think oh, Cherish is on there. Express Yourself is on that? Get mm, the okay, fuck cool. out of here. Express Yourself. Cherish is a great tune. Cherish is a great tune. Good look. I, I Honestly, I thought Express okay. Yourself was like way Later. earlier Madonna. Like, Oh, okay. okay. I think this was her... 
I think she uh I think she collabed with Prince a little bit on this one too, as I recall. Oh, did she really? This is yeah. eighty nine. For I I feel like this for some reason in my head, this is like mid nineties Madonna. But like uh No, that's like Baby's Got a Secret. Or like uh Take a Bow era Madonna. Yeah, that was definitely yeah. later. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of put them in the same uh uh time frame. But yeah, Cherish, that is a great song. Cherish yeah. like just the fact that I can the the hook is like already in my head. I just yeah, this it. has to be this has not... to be many times platinum, right? I would imagine this one. Oh well Madonna was pretty popular in nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, I think she's understatement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well I guess we'll get into it next week. Yeah. So there you have it. Next week we're gonna be listening to Madonna's Like a Prayer. So we encourage you to go out and listen to it and prep for our next episode. By the way, I just only reached 25th on the Hungarian charts. Just throw that out there for you guys. <laughs> Apparently, really? 24 better well, albums that, than Madonna. Well, that's already a no as to whether it belongs on the list or not. Well, I'd like to say that, you know, Rucklin Sardonicus belongs on the <laughs> Hungarian Olympic ice hockey team. Whatever that strange... <laughs> Yeah, uh, Bell palsy like diseases. He's he's Doctor Wooklin Sardonicus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Show some respect. <laughs> How did Like a Prayer do in Latvia? Because I've heard some good things Sexy. about the people in Latvia. They got it, really good. Big taste and hungry, hunger, Hungaria, Bulgaria, right. all the Garias. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we've got an email address. It's one thousand one album complaints at gmail dot com. If you like what you heard, let us know. If you think we're a bunch of idiots who have no idea what we're talking about, let us know that as well. If you send us an email, if it's relatively coherent, we'll even read it here on the air. So, again, next week we're listening to Madonna's Like a Prayer. I think that's going to wrap it up for us. So, for 1001 Album Complaints, I'm Adam. I am Phil. I'm Rob. I'm Steve. Oh, shit. No, wait, I'm Tom. Sorry. <laughs> I'm Alan. Boosh.